Welcome back. This is Dr. Mark McCullough with another uh, canto from Dante's Inferno. This time in, I'll be reading Canto 16 and uh, from the Mark Musa translation. I'll begin with uh, Musa's, tra- Musa's uh, summary and, uh, and then read through the canto, and then afterwards I will offer a brief discussion and some points uh, for, for readers. Continuing the, through the third round of the circle of violence, the pilgrim hears the distant roar of a waterfall, which grows louder as he and his guide proceed. Suddenly, three shades, having recognized him as a Florentine, break from their company and converse with him, all the while circling like a turning wheel. Their spokesman identifies himself and his companions as well-known and honored citizens of Florence, and begs for news of their native city. The three ask to be remembered in the world and then rush off. By this time, the sound of the waterfall is so deafening that it almost drowns out speech, and when the poets reach the edge of the precipice, Virgil takes a cord which has been bound around his pupil's waist and tosses it into the abyss. It is a signal, and in response, a monstrous form looms up from below, swimming through the air. On this note of suspense, the canto ends. Already we were where I could hear the rumbling of the water plunging down to the next circle, something like the sound of beehives humming, when three shades with one impulse broke away, running from a group of spirits passing us beneath the rain of bitter suffering. They were coming towards us, shouting with one voice, Oh, you there, stop. From the clothes you wear, you seem to be a man from our perverted city. Ah, the wounds I saw covering their limbs, some old, some freshly branded by the flames. Even now, when I think back to them, I grieve. Their shouts caught the attention of my guide. And then he turned to face me, saying, Wait, for these are shades that merit your respect. And were it not the nature of this place to reign with piercing flames, I would suggest you run towards them, for it would be more fitting. When we stopped, they resumed their normal pace, and when they reached us, then they started circling. The three first together formed a turning wheel. Just like professional wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another for the first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts began. And circling in this way kept each kept his face pointed up at me, so that their necks and feet moved constantly in opposite directions. And if the misery along these sterile sands, one of them said, and our charred and peeling flesh make us, and what we ask repulsive to you, let our great worldly fame persuade your heart to tell us who you are, how you can walk safely with living feet through hell itself. This one in front, whose footsteps I am treading, even though he runs his round naked and skinned, was of noble station, more than you may think. He was the grandson of the good Gualadranda. His name was Guido Guare, and in his life he accomplished much with counsel and with sword. This other one, who pounds the sand behind me, Tegahau Albarande, whose wise voice the world would have done well to listen to. And I, who shared this post of pain with them, was Jacopo Rustitucci, and for sure my reluctant wife first drove me to my sin. If I could have been sheltered from the fire, I would have, sh- I would have thrown myself below with them, and I think my guide would have allowed me to. 
But as I knew I would be burned and seared, my fear wore one over my first good intention that made me want to put my arms around them. And then I spoke. Repulsion, no, but grief for your condition spread throughout my heart, and years will pass before it fades away. As soon as my lord here began to speak in terms that led me to believe a group of such men as yourself might be approaching. I am from your city, and your honored names and your accomplishments I have always heard rehearsed, and have rehearsed myself with fondness. I leave the bitter gall and journey towards these sweet fruits promised me by my true guide, but first I must go down to the very center. So may your soul remain to guide your body for years to come, that same one spoke again, and your fame's light shine after you are gone. Tell us if courtesy and valor dwell within our city as they used to, or have they both been banished from the place? Guillermo Bosseri, who joined our painful ranks of late and traveled there with our companions, has given us reports that make us grieve. A new breed of people with their sudden wealth have stimulated pride and unrestraint in you, O Florence, made to weep so soon. These words I shouted with my head strained high, and the three below took this to be my answer and looked as if on truth, at one another. If you always answer questions with such ease, they all spoke up at once, so happy you to have the gift of ready open speech. Therefore, if you survive these unlit regions and return to gaze upon the lovely stars when it pleases you to say I was down there, do not fail to speak of us to living men. They broke their man-made wheel and ran away. Their nimble legs were more like wings in flight. Amen could not have been pronounced so quick, as they were off and vanished from our sight. And then my teacher thought it time to leave. I followed him, and we had not gone far before the sound of water was so close that if we spoke, we hardly heard each other. At that river on the Apennines left slope, first springing from its source at Monteveso, then flowering eastward holding its own course, called Aquacetta, at its start above before descending to its lower bed, where, at Forli, it had another name, reverberates there near San Bernardino dell'Epe, plunging in a single bound, where at least a thousand vassals could be housed. So down a single rocky precipice we found the tainted waters falling, roaring, sound loud enough to deafen us in seconds. I wore a cord that fastened round my waist, with which I once had thought I might be able to catch the leopard with the gaudy skin. As soon as I removed it from my body, just as my guide commanded me to do, I gave it to him, and it looped into a coil. Then, taking it and turning to the right, he flung it quite a distance past the bank and down into the deepness of the pit. Now surely something strange is going to happen, I thought to myself, to answer the strange signal whose course my master follows with my eyes. How cautious a man must be in company with one who can not only see his actions, but read his mind and understand his thoughts. He spoke. Soon will rise up what I expect and what you are trying to imagine now. Soon must reveal itself before your eyes. It is always better to hold one's tongue than speak a truth that seemed a bull-faced lie when uttered, since to tell this truth could be embarrassing. But I shall not keep quiet, and by the verses of my comedy so may they be received with lasting favor, reader, I swear to you I saw a figure coming. It was swimming through the thick and murky air, up to the top, a thing to startle even stalwart hearts. Like one returning who had swum below to free the anchor that had caught its hooks on a reef of something or something else the sea conceals, spreading out his arms, 
and doubling up his legs. So at the end of this canto, we have the Biscarian uh, uh, emerging from the abyss uh, to grab the cord that Virgil has cast into the abyss from the waist of Dante. We'll get to that cord in a minute, what that means. Um, but first, let's take a look at uh, Dante's treatment of these uh, Guelph individuals who approach him at the beginning of the canto. Uh, these, of course, are is an extension of the sin of, of sodomy, the sin of homosexuality. However, there's very little uh, said about the sin of homosexuality. What Dante here is concentrating on is Florence. And when he concentrates on Florence, he, the poet gives, uh, gives his own description of his grief uh, about that city, about all the political turmoil and violence and, and pain um, that he and his his uh, companions have suffered uh, as a result of the corruption of of that city, of the war between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines and the white and the black Guelphs, and just the the, the general evil um, that that city uh, that Dante encounters in that city, and we find Dante several times throughout the Inferno asking figures, uh, you know, what what's 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 up, you know, what about what about Florence, so. Is Dante's grief uh, a show of his of his um, weakness? No, I don't think it is. It's not pity for the sin. It's grief for the city. This is one of the most, uh, this is what Hollander says, I believe, in his notes. Hollander um, makes the note that, his, that Dante's treatment of the three sinners here, or the three damned, uh, the Guelphs, uh, is one of the most sympathetic and sort of cordial um, treatment of any of the sinners and any of uh, any of the cantos of the inferno, um, and so, you know, we, um, so it, it is interesting. In, in in fact, that Dante will change that is sort of change that the temperature of his um, <laughs> of his hell um, from you know boiling hot to you know slightly warm. But a concentration is elsewhere. It's on the city of Florence. Um, Remember that Dante himself associated with the Guelphs. He supported the Pope over the the empire, um, and yet, um, and yet Dante also is, his attitude is uh, that politics should be subsumed to the the care and the good of the city, um, and so he Dante is pretty sympathetic towards the Ghibelline faction too. If he if he figures that um, uh, a political leader place the, the, the health and the good of the city over over political faction and tribalism. And uh, in this in this case, the Guelphs that Dante just, just talks to here, um, there, there's quite a bit of history here. I won't unpack it for you. I don't think I could unpack it for you in a in a um, in a reasonable manner. And that's for any of you readers to, to look into the notes of what a Hollander or Musa or or Sayer, or, or Mandelbaum, or others, who uh, who do point out the very um, the, the history of these individuals, um, just know that they were the they were the Guelph faction, uh, and in, in each case they seem to be exemplifying a kind of um, use of rhetoric uh, or a use of language to per, to persuade, um, and so they represent a sort of a an ideal of civil autonomy. Um, of the idea that Florence could be autonomous and cultured without the, interf the foreign interference. Um, and like Milton in Paradise Lost, uh, who, of course, was on the wrong side of the revolution in England uh, in the 17th century, so too is Dante, sort of, if not on the wrong side of history, 
he at least is looking back over the failures, uh, even if they were, um, even if these fa- failures were worth a, a, a sympathetic portrayal. But this ideal of civil autonomy failed, and the rhetoric of these Guelphs to persuade others failed. In fact, he mentions twice in this passage that no one listened uh, to the to to these uh, to these individuals, and as a result. Um, they, there were wars or battles that they lost there. So it's sort of a backwards look. It's a sad look at Dante's city. And um, these three make this, um, these three figures make this very beautiful um, circling, turning wheel because they can't stop walking, right? Because the, the, the ground is so warm, so hot, so burning. Um, and so they, cre- they, they link, they sort of link arms and then enclose Dante in this circle, this turning wheel, and they go around and around, and they, and they, and they keep their eyes uh, on Dante as they speak to him. So it's this, it's really odd, um, oddly inverted, uh, demonic, beautiful scene. Demonic because it's in hell, but beautiful because it has this kind of circular c- circle, and um, we we understand Dante's obsession with circles and. Uh, how he builds his whole, you know, afterlife on on the ideas of circles, um, and um, and these, uh, so it's a, so it's a sort of the image of it is uh, is quite is quite beautiful, and also um, the restlessness of these Guelphs um, uh, mo- uh, sort of mirrors the the restlessness of Latini in our last in the last canto that we looked at uh, last podcast. So, um, so this scene um, again. If you want to read more of the history, you read more of the, the footnotes. Um, it, it's it's Dante deep in his own moment, um, and these figures who he admired, and we can see in this passage that he admires them. Virgil admires them in this, in a sense, right? They're worth they're worth um, discussing uh, uh, the city with, even down here in hell. Um, that this uh, this portrayal is actually quite sympathetic. Um, and places the the sin of sodomy kind of in a secondary uh, a secondary place. Well, with all that being said, there's um, there's a, a kind of uh, allegorical and dramatic point to be made about the end of this of, of Canto, which we'll pick up um, in a more central way in our next in our next talk, because there's where Garion is is featured. But we get the introduction of Garion here at the end. Of Canto of uh, sixteen, and um, this cord that Dante has around his um, around his waist, and has given uh, commentators and uh, <laughs> a lot of headaches. But what this cord represents, there was some theory uh, that the the cord was literally a cord that rep- uh, represented the the kind of habit that Dante may have worn as a Franciscan, as a in a, th- a sort of third order Franciscan. Um, that this was a this was knocked around for some time. Um, I read in one commentary that that there's a word for that. Um, there's an Italian word for that chord uh, for the habit. And why didn't Dante use just the word instead of just mentioning it as a chord? It's a good argument against this being symbolic of such a thing. Um, so that chord that's fastened around his waist, if it's not a, a literal habit, then what is it? What does it? What does it allegorically represent? Um, Dante complicates this uh, in line 108 by saying. He had thought he would be able to catch the leopard with the gaudy skin. Now, the leopard is the beast, uh, one of the three beasts that we saw from Canto One, and when we discussed that, we talked about the the various um, interpretations over the years about what these three beasts represent: the 
um, if you remember that uh, discussion, uh, remember that how how much um, there was uh, uh, confusion about what the leopard represented and what the she-wolf represented. Uh, the lion's pretty clear that it represents all forms of violence, but the she-wolf and the and the leopard in that first canto were assigned to, on the one hand, the sins of incontinence, and on the other, the sins of fraud. Um, Muse is pretty clear uh, that he believes that the leopard represents fraud, and here he uh, has um, here he has a whole uh, way of allegorically reading the chord, which is uh, Dante's um, lack of humility or self confidence that he can defeat. Um, the leopard, that is fraud. And um, by taking the cord off and giving it to Virgil, who then sort of throws it into the abyss, Dante, according to Musa, is in a moment of humility. And he's showing how much, how humble he is now and how humble he's become. Uh, and he's giving up this idea that he can beat it on his own. So he uses reason, that is Virgil, in order to, in order to overcome this. And now he's going to, uh, to, 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 to let go of his pride. Um, Others have seen the chord, um, sort of the leopard, of course, is in, in the sin of incontinence um, and the sins of, of lust, uh, because the leopard, of course, remember in Canto One is everywhere at all times, sort of blocking all of his paths. And many have said, and I think this is the correct interpretation, that Dante's particular struggle is with lust here um, throughout the Inferno, and that he seems to be more sensitive about the sins of incontinence than those of fraud, certainly. Um, but, uh, th so that's complicated. It's that the chord it itself representing kind of a, a threshold with which Dante needs to cross over. And it's an important moment in the Inferno since we're now trans transitioning from violence in, uh, the sins of violence into the sins of, of fraud. And, um, uh, Dante is at, uh, Dante makes sure that we understand this transition because he breaks the, you know, fourth wall as it, as it were, addressing the reader and saying, Dear reader, please believe what I'm saying here. It's all true. Um, bringing back this idea that, you know, Dante's, um, uh, Dante's vision of the afterlife is, a, is false, as it's made up. Um, but, Dan but Dante makes claim uh, that it's very true. And so just at this moment of this, this, this chord, uh, you know, being uh, thrown um, as a kind of almost a gift or a transition moment, so Dante breaks this wall and he addresses... Uh, he addresses the reader, you know, he said, I swear to you, I saw this, this is a real thing. Um, now, why is he doing this? I mean, so up to this point, the, the, the Inferno has been pretty fantastical. It's included mythological figures, figures that, you know, um, that readers would have been very skeptical actually existed in, in, in real life and not in, just in stories. Um, we're going to get an intensification of these figures, uh, also, an intensification, as I mentioned a couple a couple casts ago, where um, Dante loves to talk about giants and big figures and, and beasts and so forth, and uh, so he's going to get into monsters, a lot more monsters, and so he's he's saying here, you know, this is still all true. Uh, I, you know, um, he says it's better to hold one's tongue than speak a falsehood, but um, I can't can't do that here. I can't keep quiet here. This is true. This is really happening. This really happened. So Geryon is a is a is a reality to Dante. His vision of Geryon is is a reality, and so think about this. I mean, it's interesting. It's like we're we're going into you know, the final third of the uh, of the Inferno. Most of the 
Inferno is about, simple and complex fraud and malice. Um, and Dante's saying, I'm not a liar, right? I'm not, I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. Um, kind of stretches, uh, sort of stretches the idea of reality, does it not? And, um, uh, you know, uh, this is almost a mark of, of realism, right? To, say, to, to suggest uh, such a thing seems fantastical to the reader, but it's real. It's a, it's a kind of almost a rhetorical ploy uh, to make such a statement. Um, and just refer to my discussion of the letter to Con Grande, where he talks about the the use of allegory and and how the Bible plays such a, a central role in Dante's um, truth telling. Um, so, if you want to remember more about that, you can listen to that as well. Um, but here uh, we are given this um, rather dramatic uh, entry into into fraud. Um, and through Garion, you know, where the, this sort of figure swims up. And it's one of my favorite metaphors in all of the Divine Comedy, where he compares um, Garion swimming up to a, a, a person who frees the anchor. Um, this would have been like a, um, a person who worked on the docks or a person who worked on a boat, who, uh, a swimmer who, swam, who swims down into the water and sort of... Uh, uh, unhooks the hooks uh, of from the reef or whatever it is that the boat is attached to, and so that the boat may move. Um, and so he 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 compares Garion, this this monster, to to the swimmer reemerging from from the ocean after having unloosed something. So it's an extraordinary moment, and um, and Dante again is no respecter of cantos. He's going to he's going to give you a. You know, is this a cliffhanger? I mean, <laughs> he's looking down an abyss hanger. Um, uh, so um, it's it's a great it's a great conclusion to this canto, but it leads us right in right into the next.